Let's, uh, <clears throat> let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, that you are in control and um, <clears throat> that you provide um, everything we need for our needs. And uh, Father, we thank you for this ministry and we thank you that they are um, helping to save lives. And uh, Father, would you uh, provide for them in a difficult time um, uh, burdened uh, without volunteers allowed to come in and uh, give them the strength they need. Um, Father, would you um, would you come in this nation and uh, and work work a revival, uh, especially in this area, Father. Father, we need you. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Us, good to be back with you again. Uh, for those who weren't able to make it last week or don't know me, I don't know that I've got a chance to meet everyone still. I'm Daniel Watson and uh, grew up at church here, and uh, we're missionaries in Thailand with the International Mission Board, and um, filling in for Brother Andrews. Um, I don't know. I, have you talked to him at all? Uh, I, I've talked to him only briefly, so hopefully he'll be healthy and back next week. If not, you might see me again. Um, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see how that works out. We're praying for him and his family, and um, during, uh, obviously, difficult time in our country. And um, we're going to be in Second Peter again today. We were in Second Peter last week, but uh, I want to start reading scripture in Psalms 19. I'm going to read the whole psalm um, during the last, this difficult time in our country, a difficult time, especially the last couple weeks. There's no comfort like God's word and uh, no better thing to do than read his word. So let's read together. I'm reading out the CSB, starting in verse one for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleanse from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, 
Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a pretty famous psalm. I think when you open it up with this one, I think most of us know um, this psalm immediately. Heavens declare the glory of God is a, is a well-known phrase that we say. Uh, and as I was reading this psalm this week in my own reading, I was struck by the structure of David's psalm here um, in a way that I'd never noticed before in my reading of it. He starts with um, nature's witness, and it testifies to God's glorious character. But he moves quickly from that in verse 7. It seems like a rather, you might say, disjointed psalm. How does it fit together? How does nature's witness fit with verse 7, where he suddenly moves into the instruction of the Lord is perfect? But I think if you, if you think about it, it does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? When we look up into the sky, we see that God is real. When we look deep inside cells, and the more we learn, the more complex we realize it is, the more we realize there must be a designer, even down to the very genetic structure is like a computer, a very advanced computer code that no designer could, would say could happen by accident. And we know that God is real. But there's something that knowing God is real that it must lead us to. And he, and he hits on that in verse 7. He says, when we realize that God is real by looking at nature, and it's evident to us, what's important is that we realize that he has a way for us to live in this world. He has instructions. He has commands. He has ordinances that we must follow. And he says, they aren't burdensome, though. They're better than pure gold. They're better than the best thing you could possibly eat. I don't know where you're planning on going out to eat afterwards. Maybe you're, you know, COVID, a lot of people don't go out to eat quite as much, but maybe you're looking forward to lunch today on Sunday. But he says, whatever you were thinking of eating, whatever restaurant you're thinking of going to, whatever meal you're preparing, God's commands for our life are better than that. And then he moves in the last section there. It actually would make a great sermon because it breaks down into to three parts. Uh, if you ever wondered, I was thinking about it actually this week as I prepared, like two is a little bit too short, uh, four is a little bit too long, three just kind of fits nicely for the length of time that we normally meet. But he breaks this into three parts, and the third part there starts in verse 12, where he says, nature tells us all about God, and we can't deny it, and then because we know he's real, we must follow his commands, and his commands are amazing, and to follow them and to fear the Lord is better than anything else we could get in this life. And then in verse 12, he moves to, Lord, would you keep me from sin? I love your commands, but I'm a man. This is David talking. We know he was certainly not perfect in his life, especially in the area that 2 Peter is going to talk about. He had, you know, very blatant sin, sexual immorality, and then killing a man. 
and he prays to the Lord, Lord, would you keep me from sin? General knowledge of God is undeniable, despite the fact that in the West we generally struggle with people denying it, though we in Asia don't have that problem generally. We don't have a problem convincing people there's a God per se, just talking about who he is. But general knowledge is not saving knowledge, is it? Saving knowledge of God, however, is directly linked to moral fidelity to God's commands. Now, this world, I think, as we've been seeing what's happening through the elections and everything else going on with COVID and lockdowns, it's, it's, a, it's a broken world. If you didn't know that, turn on the news, you'll see it's very quickly. It's a very broken world. And it has an expiration date, thank goodness. The brokenness will come to an end. God, in his own timing, will bring it to an end, and he'll bring about a perfect world, a new world, a world in which he rules with a rod of iron and disobedience is not allowed. A new creation and a perfect governmental kingdom are sure and coming. That's what Second Peter, that's what Peter wants to say in his last letter here to his churches. However, Peter wants them to know that entrance into this coming kingdom demands moral purity. And Peter ends his life, as David ends this psalm, with a plea to the churches to make earnest effort in moral purity. Last week we were in 2 Peter 1, 1 through uh, 4, and we're going to continue on. Last week uh, in, in 1 Peter 1, 5 through uh, uh, 11, last week we saw three securities for life in an immoral world. Peter wants to reassure his readers, these churches, whoever they are, probably in Asia Minor, probably the same ones from 1 Peter, in the Galatia region and, and around that area of what we modern-day Turkey. He's sitting in a Roman prison awaiting sure death. And he doesn't write to complain about the government and how unjust it is to him. He doesn't have a word for it. Now, he does talk about it in 1 Peter. He says, look, if you're going to suffer, you better not suffer for doing something wrong. But when you suffer as a Christian, don't be surprised. But here, he's in a much worse situation than he was in 2 Peter. And really, he has nothing to say about that situation other than to say, very soon, my, my exit out of this world is coming. I know it's here. I know it's at hand. But his real concern for the churches is not how they're going to operate under the government. His real concern is how they're going to operate in their moral life. And he knows that that is a much bigger danger for the church than any governmental system, any threat of death, could be. So we saw last week three securities for life in an immoral world. We saw security of God's character, the security of God's power, God is powerful. God has promised to keep us secure in this world. God has promised that if you believe in him and you have the true knowledge of him, then you will share in that divine nature and you will escape this immoral world. And we have the security of God's promise. Promises, he says. He's made us promises of sharing with him in his divine nature 
of escaping this world, and we can trust him. His promises are sure. True knowledge of God assures partnership with the divine nature and escape from the world. True knowledge of God gives us access, he says, to God's power for life and godliness. If you remember last week, we said, we read, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's a message of hope that we need. Everything. Are you trusting in God for that everything? Are you believing that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness? But he's going to talk about, starting in verse 5, true knowledge of God also leads to our action. It's not a passive thing that Peter's calling us to, even though he says it is sure and is through God's power, but it is not passive. And so my purpose today is I'm going to call you to earnest effort to live virtuously on our journey of escape from the world. The world, we're escaping not only the world and its immoral system, but we're escaping the world and its imminent judgment. And our escape is into an eternal kingdom. And we have earnest effort not out of guilt and fear, but out of assurance that the Lord has given us the power and the promise to live this virtuous life he calls us to. And today we're going to see three requirements for entrance into the eternal kingdom. Three requirements for entrance into the eternal kingdom. Let me just ask you before we begin, I can't think of a better season in our country to remind us that our kingdom is a coming kingdom. Our kingdom is an eternal kingdom. But our kingdom that we are entering has requirements to get into it. And we have to keep our eyes both on the kingdom and on its requirements. So today we're going to see three requirements for entrance into an eternal kingdom. Read with me, if you will, in 1 Peter, starting in verse 5. He says, For this reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord, and Je- of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. Father, would you speak to every person today through your word, do meditations and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you as David prays in the psalm, and that these would be your words pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to see three requirements for entrance into the eternal kingdom. I want to look in verse 5. We're going to see the first requirement right from the beginning. First requirement is earnest effort in living a virtuous life. Look with me, if you will, at verse 5. He says, for this very reason. Now, 
I didn't read one through four, but if you remember from last week, he says in verse four, by these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason. What very reason? The reason that God has given us a great promise. And this promise means we're going to share in his divine nature and we're going to escape this immoral world. And so for this, here's what we are going to do with God's promise of power and of escape. He says, make every effort. Make every effort. It's quite the message. I think Second Peter encapsulates the, the dichotomy of the Christian life. We have a sure promise that when we trust in Jesus that he saves us, that he keeps us secure. And yet when we read the New Testament, we see many calls for something for us to do. And he says, you are going to make every effort. And he's going to talk about it as if we are on an escape out of this world and we are going to an eternal kingdom. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Now, It is not just our, uh, he's going to say, access to God's divine power for life and godliness does not mean we have no responsibility. But it is not just our responsibility. Well, okay, let's pause right there and look at that word goodness. Now, this is a strange word that Peter uses here. And uh, there's actually other ways to translate it. Your translations may have something different. The CSB is decided on goodness. Um, and it's a word that's not used very much in the New Testament. It was very common in the, the Greek and the Roman world to use this word because uh, it was their most common word for virtue, which we might easily translate virtue. They don't translate it virtue because the Greco-Roman way of talking about virtue was very different from the Christian way of talking about virtue. We have a totally different system than they had. And he says, uh, if you see, look up there in uh, verse 4, Three, at the end of verse 3, it says, God has called us by his own glory and goodness, or virtue. And so God has this quality in himself, and through this nature of God, his goodness, his virtue, this is why he's called us, and in turn, we are to respond with God with an equal measure of virtue, of goodness, of moral goodness, you could say. And so it's sort of a general term for what he's going to unpack as he continues this long list of things. And really, when you have a list like this, some of them are very, you know, difficult to exactly understand what each word means. We could probably spend a long time on each word, an entire sermon just on the list. But we're going to move through it quickly. Goodness is sort of the first one. It's sort of an overview term. And now he's going to unpack it. Look what he says. Supply with goodness, knowledge. Now, he's already said, if you have knowledge of God, but now he says, you're going to supply extra knowledge. So it's sort of like general knowledge. We supply with general knowledge, true knowledge of God. And we supply with true knowledge of God, specific knowledge of what he's doing in our life. So as you're on your journey of escape through this world, you've got to have an understanding of what's going on, don't you? You've got to understand that first, God has called us to a moral life. God has called us 
to live a life that is different from those of everybody else in this world is going to be living around us. He's called us to share in his divine nature. And second, we are on an escape journey. This is going to be dangerous. And you have to know what God is doing. But at the same time, you're going to have knowledge of God's promise. You're not going to be worried. You're not going to despair. You're going to know that God has given you a sure promise of escape from this world. You supply with knowledge, self-control, and then you supply with self-control, endurance. I think uh, those two, for me, ring home more clearly exactly what he's talking about, doesn't it? It's going to take self-control and endurance in this life because you are going to be surrounded by people who think that ways of God are crazy. They're silly. And yes, I think American culture, maybe a generation or two ago, people would say, people, it was more commonplace to think of the, uh, the, 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 the Christian worldview as the right way. And now we're seeing that change dramatically in America. And we live in a country in Thailand where that's not understood at all. And people that Peter's writing to in the Roman world, they have no knowledge of, uh, of Christian morality. And Christians are, seem like crazy people. And that's how they're treated. And they're going to be enticing you, and they're going to be ridiculing you, and they're going to be scoffing at you, we see in, in chapter 3. And it's going to take incredible self-control and incredible endurance on your journey of escape through this immoral world to maintain Christian virtue. It's going to take every effort, he says. Every effort. It's not going to be easy, he says. Look what he says we add to self-control endurance and endurance with godliness. Godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I think he ends with brotherly affection, or some translations probably translate it brotherly love, but they probably changed the word just to give it a little bit of different nuance there. Um, The love we have for each other is not going to be like the world. In fact, it's going to be the defining characteristic of what it means to be in the church, isn't it? We're going to have a different love for each other. In fact, the world calls sexual immorality love, don't they? That's their definition of love. The love we have for each other is going to be different. The love we have for the world is going to be different. We have to have a different love. And that love will be the defining characteristic of how we're different. First John says, he who claims to love his brother, or he who claims to love God but does not love his brother is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now this list, as I mentioned earlier, would be a strange list. Lists were pretty common for virtue. They wanted to know exactly how to be virtuous, but this list would be a little bit strange from the Christian point of view and the Greco-Roman point of view. 
there's something strange that happened in American culture, uh, in Western culture, really, and I've heard several scholars of the uh, ancient Greek and Romans talk about this very thing. They would say, what happened in the West is a merging of Christian values with Greco-Roman values, which is extremely strange because those two values are opposed to each other. They have nothing in common, but somehow in the West, we've managed to merge them, and most of us aren't even quite aware that we've merged them. Um, but I think Christian virtue is, is uh, summed up well when Jesus says, how does he start the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that word, uh, have you ever thought about exactly what he means, poor in spirit there? He's not talking about money, per se. He's talking, it's, it's a word that could mean those who are oppressed in spirit, oppressed by other people. He's based, and then if you read on through the, the Sermon on the Mount, he ends with what? Blessed are the persecuted. He ends like he began. It's a little bit strange when we hear poor in spirit. We don't quite make the connection between persecuted, but that's basically what he's saying. Jesus says, when we are persecuted, when we are beat down in this world, when we are seen as nothing, when we are reviled for the name of Christ, that's when you're blessed. And the world even today, says that's crazy talk. And the world in the Roman era said, that's insane. Roman virtue was power through power. Victory through victory. Defeat your enemy, then you'll be strong. That's virtue. Another way of defining virtue was just the ability to get anything done. Not only moral goodness, but also physical tasks. They would talk about animals even having virtues, able to get tasks done. Christian virtue is power through weakness. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That has nothing to do with Roman idea of virtue. That's why it's strange when Peter even uses the word virtue here, because it seems confusing. But we in our Western world have confused what God has called us to with a... With a with a pagan view of virtue. Let me ask you today, have you considered that God has called you to earnest effort? Sure, you may know God, have the true knowledge of him, and you may be sure in your salvation. But in that surety, he has called us to the most earnest effort that we can possibly make which includes self-control and endurance and love for one another. Is your view of virtue consistent with the biblical view? Has the world confused you a little bit with its call to virtue and its call through power through power? God has called us to power through weakness because when we are weak, then we are strong in him then he truly works in us. The first requirement to the eternal kingdom is earnest effort in living a virtuous life. Second requirement is fruit in Christian life. Look with me, if you will, at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
eager effort in Christian life in which we're confident of God's promise to provide the power, if that eager effort is present, it will increase and it will prevent us from being fruitless and without works in our knowledge of God. That's quite a promise that he gives us here. But he says, he has a caveat, doesn't he? He says, if these things aren't present, what are you? You're blind. You're short-sighted. You've forgotten about God's cleansing of your past sins. Now, this is a, a difficult verse in a way. I want to be very careful with it. I've studied it a very long time. I spent uh, more than a year every week with Second Peter. thought about this verse a lot. And uh, there's, there's some of your translations have made di- different translations. But he says, I think it's, if you think about somewhat, the actual grammar here and, and you think about it logically, you can't both be blind and short-sighted, right? If you're blind, you're blind. You're not short-sighted. And if you're short-sighted, you're not quite blind yet. But it probably should be translated something more like, he's blind by being short-sighted and being a forgetter of the past sins. In other words, you become a blind person by being short-sighted. And what are you short-sighted about? Well, you're not focused on the eternal kingdom. You're not focused on God's rules for morality. You're not focused on what he's called us to. That's short-sightedness. If you're focused on the things in this world, you're short-sighted. And if you're short-sighted and focused on the things in this world, you're not going to think about God's cleansing of our sins. And if you're not thinking about God's cleansing of our sins, then you can be characterized as a blind person altogether. You don't see where you're going. A blind person ignores sin and its consequences. A blind person ignores the coming kingdom and its requirements. But, he says, if they're present, then they'll be increasing. Amen? He says they will, they will be increasing. If they're present, they'll be increasing. It's very similar to, the, to the, 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 the parable of the soils, isn't it? There's four soils, three of them, no fruit. One of them has fruit. He says if there's fruit, it's going to be increasing. He says if you have these, this effort, if you have these virtues, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ or in other words, if you have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then you're going to have earnest effort because you're going to know about the eternal kingdom that's coming and you're going to know what the requirements are for this eternal kingdom and you're going to make earnest effort and your earnest effort is going to increase because guess what? You've got God's power inside of you, he says in verse 3, and he's going to give you everything you need and you don't have to worry and that will keep you from being unfruitful. You'll be the good soil. Don't think that the good soil is only for really special Christians. He's talking about everyone who believes is good soil. Everyone who believes produces fruit. And yes, sometimes the fruit is 30 or 40 or 100 times, but they all have fruit. The demons have knowledge of God, don't they, James says. Look, look, look with me, if you will, at James 2, 19, this verse. 2 Peter seemed to go well together. Verse 2.18 of James, someone will say, 
You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's the same message Peter's giving in 2 Peter. If you have the true knowledge of God, you will supply earnest effort. If they're present at all, they're going to be increasing. Abraham had real faith in God. So when God said, you sacrifice that which is most precious to you in this world, Abraham did it. That's true faith. That's what David was talking about in Psalms 19. You can see, look up in the sky, everyone can, and see that it's amazing. The more technology increases, the more amazing we discover it to be. But having that simple faith is like demonic faith. You need more than that. Having true faith leads to love of God and his ways and his commands and his morality. And it ends like Psalms 19 ends with a plea. Lord, keep me from sin. Earnest effort in Christian virtues ensures fruit, but effort is required. Let me be careful, though. Effort is not the same as perfection. That's where the Pharisees got off. They were incorrect. Demanding perfection is legalism. But confident effort, which understands God's available power to act, avoids such legalism. If we understand that God has already given us the power and everything we need for godliness, then we can in turn supply godliness because it comes through God's power, not our own. Legalism is the Roman virtue, power through power. I'm going to do this myself because I have the power in myself. Christian virtue says, I don't have the ability, but Lord, would you keep me from sin? And Lord, I know that you have given me everything I need for life and godliness. And so I'm going to make all the effort I can in your power. Three requirements for entrance into the eternal kingdom. First requirement was our earnest effort in living a virtuous life. Second requirement was actual fruit. We have to have actual fruit to get into the kingdom. You don't get into the kingdom without fruit. And the last uh, requirement is a confirmed invitation. A confirmed invitation. Look with me, if you will, back at Second Peter. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, Entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. 
I want you to look there at that first opening line that he has in verse 10, which the CSB has added sisters to get the idea of when he, meant bro when he said brothers, he meant everybody. It was just a general way of referring to everybody. And so they've clarified that he meant everybody by saying brothers and sisters, but he says, he calls them what? He says, brothers. When Peter calls them brothers, he's not talking to people who don't have an invitation into this kingdom, who don't have a calling, who don't have an election. Because what's he going to call the false teachers? He's, in 2.1, he's going to call them directly false teachers. In 2.12, he's going to call them dumb animals, mute animals. In 2.19, he's going to call false converts slaves of corruption. In 3.3, he's going to call them scoffers. And in 3.16, he's going to call them ignorant and unstable. But people who have the true knowledge of God, he calls brothers and sisters. And he says, you brothers and sisters, just like you make every effort in Christian life, you're going to make sure that your calling into God's kingdom is sure. Make every effort, he says again, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Sure, has God called us into his kingdom specifically? Yes. Does that mean we get to sit in our pews and just wait for the kingdom to come and do nothing about it, and his power will just drag us kicking and screaming into the kingdom? No. He says you're going to make every effort to make confirm that your calling and election is sure. And look what he says. If you do this, you will never stumble. You will never stumble. Who is the one who stumbles on a journey? He's already said it, hasn't he? If you're blind, if you're blind and you can't see where you're going on a journey in through this world, you're going to stumble all the time. You're going to fall repetitively. But he says, you, brothers and sisters, by making sure of your calling and election, will never stumble. Why? Look in verse 11. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Jesus Christ will be richly, what does it say, provided for you. He's going to provide the entrance for us. Even though we have two calls in this passage for earnest effort, he wants to make sure that he closes it like he began the letter by saying, this will be provided for you. We've been reading in our family readings, um, book of Daniel, and uh, my, my oldest daughter, she's been doing some uh, of her, her uh, homework, her um, uh, homeschooling, and she's been learning about the, the timeline of history, and so she's gotten to the um, Israel falling to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians falling to Babylon, and Babylon falling to Persia, and Persia fell to Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great fell to Rome. And Daniel has a vision hundreds of years before Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before the empire of Rome, hundreds of years before our own time, and he saw the end of history. And he describes four kingdoms, 
which were Babylon, which he was living in, and then came Persia, which he also saw, and then he describes Alexander the Great, which came long after Daniel died, which is one of the reasons that people are most eager to discredit the dating of Daniel, because he so clearly describes future events that there's no denying that if he actually wrote it when he says he wrote it, it has to be prophecy. And then he describes the Roman Empire, which seems to have a, some sort of future prophetic still available to us. There's going to be ten horns, and three horns will be supplanted by one little horn, which is the Antichrist himself. And then his kingdom will be supplanted by Christ himself, who is the rock not cut with human hands. That's real history. Open up Daniel, you can see what happened. There's a coming kingdom. And it's going to get, according to Daniel and Revelation, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And the idea that we should be fighting for a, 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 an earthly kingdom and a kingdom that does not last and trying to make this world perfect while we, we do all we can, of course, we make every effort. But there's a limitation to what can happen on this earth. And it's going to get worse, but there is a coming kingdom. And it's an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom will never end. And that kingdom will be perfect. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. And that kingdom requires moral purity. And that kingdom requires our every effort. When Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, he said, Pontius Pilate asked him if he's a king. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Make no mistake, we've been called to a fight in this world. But it is primarily a fight in morality, in our own personal life of endurance and self-control and godliness. And a confirmed calling means that we cannot be short-sighted about the journey we're on and not see the end of where we're going. Today we've seen three requirements for entrance into the eternal kingdom. First requirement was our earnest effort in living a virtuous life. Second requirement was actual fruit. We must have fruit in the Christian life. And finally, we must have a confirmed invitation. And I think when we think about this confirmed invitation, Matthew 22, Jesus gives a parable that helps us understand this very well. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those who invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one on his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops to kill those murderers and burn their, down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. 
So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, this is a very strange parable. Nothing like what we have in our own world. I mean, we don't even understand that when a king has a wedding, everyone in the kingdom is invited and expected to come. But he's talking specifically to the Jews. Jesus says the kingdom is here, and they didn't want to come. And so he goes to the highways and the byways, which is the Gentiles, you and me. And he says everybody is invited. That's God's general call to everyone. Come to my wedding feast. It's an open invitation. But then we see that there's a man who shows up who does not dress properly. Now, I, I think theoretically, uh, uh, seems like from what, he, uh, what we understand from history was that when you arrived at a wedding feast, you would be given the clothes, and he got in somehow without taking the proper clothes, which were offered, would have been offered to him. And then he's at the wedding feast, but he's doing it his own way. And that's what gets him in trouble. You see, there's, there's a coming wedding feast. There's a coming eternal kingdom. And we've been invited to it. But God's got a, a way to get in. And he's got specific requirements about how to get into his kingdom. And a lot of times, especially here in America, you see people want to get into his kingdom their own way. People want to get in their own way. That's not going to work. God's got specific requirements for our moral purity that is required fruit for entrance into his eternal kingdom. And it's going to require our earnest effort. Yet, we are confident in God's power. He has given us the power, his divine power, for everything, for life and godliness. Where are you at today? Are you short-sighted? Are you not focused on that which is eternal? Are you fighting for a kingdom which will not last? Perhaps you've been stumbled and lost the way on this journey. And I'm not talking about the stumbling of those who never knew, but I'm talking about Christian stumbling. Let me call you back to eager confidence in God's power that you will share in his divine nature. But it's going to require your every effort. Let me call you to effort in Christian life. Now, if you don't know him here today, then you're blind. You don't know him. And Peter is going to have some very harsh things to say about those who don't know him in his letter. That there's a coming judgment, it's very real, and it's also eternal. But Jesus came into this world, and he did that which we could not do. He lived that perfect life. And he died on that cross and took our sins upon him, and he rose again on the third day, and in rising, he provides us the power for everything we need for life and godliness, if we have the true knowledge of him.
And let me assure you, brothers and sisters, if we have the true knowledge of him, we will have fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your guarantee, your sure guarantee of escape out of this world. Father, would you protect us? Father, would you enable us um, to make that eager effort, every effort in our struggle to have self-control, to have endurance, to have love for one another? We pray this in Jesus' name.